we had one car, that car we bought, the, the new car, <laughs> my biggest mistake, but we actually had that car. That was the only car we had for four years. So we shared, even when we first moved home, took a couple of years before we had Ava, I would drive Tracy to school, drop her off, go to my job, pick her up in the afternoon. Someday she needed the car, I would ride my bike to work. I was the only teacher parking in the, in the bike rack, right? But um, but we knew, you know what, if, in order for her to be able to stay at home on my teacher's salary of about $42,000 a year at that time, we couldn't have car payments. We couldn't have a huge mortgage. We couldn't have this debt because let's face it, 42,000 doesn't go very far. So we knew, you know, it's gonna provide for us for those living expenses, but any excess, it's gonna be really difficult to do so. Welcome to Real Stories, Journeys of Financial Wellness. I'm your host, Crystal Lugazima. Today's conversation features Danny Kofke. Danny shares his personal money journey and has a lot of great tips to offer. After being a school teacher for 18 years, he now works as a motivational mentor to help others manage their finances better. Danny has written five personal finance books and appeared on numerous national television shows. He has also been interviewed on over 600 radio shows. He has given hundreds of presentations across the country helping others with money management and showing them that if a former school teacher can do well financially, they can too. Let's meet Danny. Danny, so glad that you could join us today here on Real Stories. Um, so I'd like to ask you first, before we get into your eventual uh, money journey, what did you first learn about money growing up? <laughs> what a great question. Um, you know, I, I kind of look back on it and, and I think of, to myself, like, where did I even learn how to do this budget thing? Because I kind of always started off and I've, I've all, it seems like I've always done it. And, you know, like, like most people, never took a class on it. I really didn't read many books on it. But, you know, now I kind of look back on my childhood and I remember my mom stayed at home until I was in sixth grade and my dad, I mean, a modern income. So, so nothing, you know, fancy, uh, had a brother as well. So I remember growing up until I was in seventh grade, we lived in a two bedroom, one bathroom house, right? It's like, how do we do that? Now I think I'm like, wow, one bathroom, we all shared. But, you know, I, I look back and it was like, we always felt like we had enough. Now, you know, I had friends that they had more materialistic things than I did, but we were always happy and always content. So I think, you know, it, it was just as a parent now, it kind of made me feel good. I'm like, okay, hopefully some of these lessons were instilling in our daughters that, you know, I, I may not see it right now, but over time they're paying off. So I think I just had that base from, from my parents of like, what? is truly important. And, you know, once again, going back, did not make a large salary, but yet we're able to do, you know, took family vacations and did those things because, you know, had, had, uh, you know, not fancy cars, had that smaller home. So I, I think over time, I just learned from them that, you know, even though I do know some people that, that have more, had my friends, some of them had bigger houses and things like that, they weren't as happy. You know, they had parents that maybe were divorced and they just, you know, had some bickering and stuff. Whereas my house, we didn't have that. So I think, you know, it just kind of stuck with me right there that, yeah, money's important and, and you need to do well with it, of course. But, you know, making a lot of money doesn't necessarily equate to happiness. So I think just some of those deep rooted things uh, from, from growing up are, are, it's kind of what stuck with me. So, so it sounds like, and you alluded to that you you now have two daughters. Um, that mm -hmm. a lot of what you learned from that you've you've brought forward as you've uh, helped to to raise them, and specifically financially. Are are there any approaches that you you you're taking a little bit of a different approach based on how you grew up? Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit. I, I think you know, I feel blessed. Um, yeah, sometimes you're like, oh, how do we do it? But like not having smartphones, not having all these things that make it so much more difficult right now to be a kid. And I have two daughters, so that's even harder. And they're both teenagers. So like the, the social media impact I've seen 
you know, it, it's definitely a, a much, it's harder, I, I think, for them than it was for me growing up. So there's a little things that I am a little more lenient on, you know, even with the budget, like, so my wife, Tracy stayed home for eight years. Um, and, and then when she went back to work, I'm like, look, if you're going back to work full time, something's got to give. So we actually, and I never would have thought of this, but we have, we have a cleaner come once a month and clean the house just because I'm like, you know, it takes it off your plate. Um, we, we eat out a couple times a week, but I have money set aside for that because, you know, for, for the longest time. And when Tracy stayed home, I was a teacher. So we were living off about $42,000 a year during that period of time. So, you know, we, you know, more than doubled our income. So I thought, you know, just for a, a couple little things that we can, uh, we can do still making more money than we were before, but just to make our lives a little bit easier. So I think, you know, for me, I kind of, kind of take a bigger overall look now, whereas there are things like, you know, especially even you know, when we were living off one salary, no way I would ever consider doing. And now I kind of, I think loosen up a little bit and, and try to enjoy some of it right now. You know, it used to be any single extra dime we had, I'd pay, apply it to the mortgage to pay that off as fast as possible. And now, you know what, it's okay when you have money saved to, to take that family vacation and enjoy that time. So just a little shift, you know, for me, but I do think once again, especially in the past two years, I've noticed, you know, it, with my daughters, the, the way COVID has impacted them and the socialization, it's just, you know, it's really important to kind of do those things right now. Yeah. So it sounds like kind of when the money is available, kind of striking the balance to realize that time like money is also finite. So kind of putting yep. yes. yeah, emphasis there. Right. Now, as we go back to your early working life, uh, well, you know, before you you met your eventual wife, can you recall any money decisions or habits that you would later regret? And if so, what did you learn? Uh, you know, I, I think not that, you know, anything I regret, but something that really stuck with me. And once again, this is what my parents did. Like for my first car, they actually, they made me pay half for it. You know, I had a, and I was still going to school. I played baseball. I got a college scholarship. So, I mean, I, I was active in that, but I still in the summer, I had a job and I saved up for, for half of that truck. And I go back and I do once again, think of some of my friends that were given everything that was given, you know, to them, they didn't have to work for it. And they didn't treat their possessions or in their vehicles, like I did mine, because I knew how much sweat went into it. So, you know, for me, I think that was, you know, positive. Um, but I will say kind of fast forward, it, it was after Tracy and I got married, but probably the biggest probably, you know, the worst financial decision I guess we really ever made was buying a brand new car. So I bought actually brand new. So, you know, right off the lot. So now that was before I knew all about depreciation and, you know, should buy a, a two-year-old used car and knock off that depreciation. So I'm not paying for it. Um, so that, you know, for me was probably the worst financial decision uh, that, that I've ever made. And it was in my you know young career before I kind of learned all the, all this stuff about finance. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, with, with meeting your wife, that I understand that within a year, you went from meeting her to getting married. So in the, the buildup, and I, I know eventually you moved abroad, so we'll, we'll get to that in a second, mm -hmm. but what was the adjustment like financially in those first few months after you got married? See, so, and, and you know, I don't want to jump ahead, but actually, I mean, we got married the middle of June, and then we were living and teaching overseas uh, by the beginning of August. So we really didn't have, there wasn't a lot of that time here in the States. Um, and we were fortunate that we knew, you know, after getting married that after about a month and a half, we were going to, you know, kind of start fresh. So it was kind of a still a weird thing that like, okay, whose house do we live at kind of going back and forth between our parents house before we left. But, um, but yeah, not, you know, in that period of time, there really wasn't a lot of adjustments just because we were planning on on moving. Hmm. So as you alluded to, so you both wound up teaching abroad in Poland for a couple of years. Yep. I wrote here very early in your marriage, as you said, very early, <laughs> two months in, right? Yes, yes, um, yes. Uh, what was your and Tracy's financial approach at that time? And were there any lessons that you might have taken from observing the locals? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, that that living in overseas for two years was basically the foundation for our financial success. Um, you know, we came and I love America, greatest country on earth, but definitely the land of excess. So we go to Poland and we see these people living differently than, than we were, but yet many of them seemed more content just with the locals and stuff. So it was like, huh, 
maybe they're onto something here. It's not just rush, rush, rush to go everywhere and do this. They, you know, stopped and smelled the roses and a lot of them walked and did things. So it was a great learning experience for us of just seeing kind of a different way of like, oh, okay, it doesn't always have to be this, you know, consumer consumption and trying to, to accumulate as much as possible. Um, and, and, you know, for us starting off our marriage, it was probably relying on just each other. And at that time it was um, the year 2000. So, you know, no cell phones, things like that. We called home once a week with a calling card. Uh, so we basically relied on each other to, to do those things. And, you know, the financial decisions we made, I mean, we were fortunate enough that, you know, the salaries we made were, um, they, they weren't taxed. I mean, they weren't as much as we'd make in the States, but, um, but they weren't taxed. So, and our living was provided for the apartment, the school paid for. So, you know, we were fortunate to start off in that way and that we were able to save money. But um, but even every vacation we took, so we visited because we knew, you know, we only had two years over there. Who knows if we'll ever get back before kids and all those things. So we traveled to 11 countries. But yet every single time we went, we had a budget set aside because we knew we were going to move home in a couple of years. And then we wanted money set aside for down payments on a car, house and those types of things. So every month we kind of stuck with that budget. We automatically saved money. So taken out every single month of our paycheck and then lived on the rest. But then once again, anytime we took trips or things like that, we had a budget set up. So we knew that we wouldn't exceed it and just blow it. And, you know, that was kind of a very important you know, for me, and now I even look back and I'm like, how did we even know to budget? You know, it was before getting into finances and stuff. So I think it was just instilled in us just to do that. And that way we did have that flexibility. And, you know, when we came back, we had money in the bank to put a down payment on a home and buy a car. So that's really cool is like, it seems like when you guys experienced that, that you were simultaneously living in the moment, but still thinking about tomorrow at the same time, which is a hard right. balancing act. Yeah. yeah. And that's key. I mean, I think that's key. That is why so many people, I mean, that it's, you know, delayed gratification. And I think that's the problem with, with many right now that it's very hard to sacrifice today for something tomorrow. And, and, you know, but we did have, and we knew, you know, eventually when we had children, we wanted to have options to, to have Tracy be able to stay at home if possible. So knowing that and living on a teacher salary, we knew, okay, if we want this to happen, these are the steps that we're going to have to take. And so that leads to my next question. As, as you mentioned, uh, there was an eight-year period where you decided to go down to one salary, where, where your wife was, was home with your first child, eventually uh, two children. What were some of your guiding principles to make your budget work for a family of three that was living off of a teacher's salary? Uh, yeah. Uh, and you know, here's where, honestly, the planning beforehand really helped us. So once again, knowing that kind of that was an idea for us. So when we bought our first home, it was truly a starter home. It was a two bedroom, two bath house. So we knew, okay, we, this is the mortgage that we're going to be able to afford. Eventually, if you do stay home, we had one car, that car we bought, the, the new car, <laughs> my biggest mistake, but we actually had that car. That was the only car we had for four years. So we shared, even when we first moved home, took a couple of years before we had Ava, I would drive Tracy to school, drop her off, go to my job, pick her up in the afternoon. Someday she needed the car. I would ride my bike to work. I was the only teacher parking in the, in the bike rack, right? But um, but we knew, you know what, If in order for her to be able to stay at home on my teacher salary of about $42,000 a year at that time, we couldn't have car payments. We couldn't have a huge mortgage. We couldn't have this debt because let's face it, 42,000 doesn't go very far. So we knew, you know, it's going to provide for us for those living expenses, but any excess, it's going to be really difficult to do so. So, you know, it, going into it, we kind of practice in a way before living off that one salary. So we used her money coming in while she was still working before having Ava to kind of build up our savings and, and pay off that debt. But, um, but I think it was just, you know, we, it was instilled in us. Okay. This is, if we really feel this important about you staying home, this is what's going to have to happen. And, you know, uh, there was no materialistic thing that made us want to change the lifestyle we had. I mean, I'm like anyone. I see someone pull up next to me in a new Mercedes. Of course I want it. I mean, and at that time I thought, you know, I can have that, but something will have to change. I'll either A, have to get out of teaching and get a higher paying job. B, I'll have to get a second job and not see much of my family. Or C, Tracy's going to have to go back to work. And in those eight years, there wasn't one single item that made us want to change the way we were living. So just kind of weigh it out. And, and, you know, and that's what I tell people, do what's right for you and your family. For some people, it isn't right for someone to stay home and that's fine, but we just did what was right for us. And then, in, you know, any financial decision we made, we kind of looked at the bigger picture of how it would impact us. 
So it really seems that philosophically, as you described this, that both you and Tracy were on the same page. And also when you, when you met her, it was a pretty quick whirlwind uh, before you guys Mm -hmm. eventually got together. Um, How did the two of you figure that out that you were both on the same page or were, was that a process Mm -hmm. to get on the same page? Cause you know, I, I imagine that I know, and I have a question later about that is how money tends to be kind of a taboo topic and even in relationships, it can be awkward. So how did you get there? How did you have that confidence to say, this isn't going to become a problem or was it? And then you got there. Well, I mean, you know, the beauty, I mean, there's, you know, not making a lot of money being a teacher, but there's some good part of that too, is like, here's what I make. I mean, it's not like a sales role, you know, there's no commission. I'm, this is my salary, what I'm going to make this year. So if we want to do this. This is what we have to live within. So there really was in a way, not a lot of negotiating because we both felt strongly about her staying home. So it was like, and I would joke to her, I'm like, look, Hey, if you want that, go get a job, you know, and we'd kind of kid about it, but just, we were on the same page of what we both were working towards. And I think, yeah, you hit it perfectly. It's like, it's just that communication. And I think that's where a lot of spouses get into trouble. And, you know, in a relationship, there are a lot of times one person is more of the, the, you know, the free spirit, they spend more. The other one is more of the saver and that's fine. You need that. Tracy's more of the spender in our, our relationship. I'm more, you know, I, I kind of hold on to it a little bit tighter, but I learned from her, like I just discussed, you know, I've actually freed up a little bit and she's learned from me too sometimes where it's okay, I'm not going to buy everything just because I want, I'm going to, you know, hold on to it. So, uh, but, but going back to it, it's just that open communication. You're so right that, that it, it remains a taboo topic for a lot of people, but, you know, I look at it and I still talk to people. They separate their accounts when they're married. I'm like, if you're together, it's like a shared thing. And that's the thing. We've always just shared our accounts and we've worked on the same goals together and we discuss it. We, we talk about it, you know, not all the time. I mean, you know, not every week, but we, I mean, at least once a month, we kind of discuss, okay, are we achieving our goals? What are we working towards? Just so we have that open line of communication. So as you have this experience, I know that it eventually led to a book. How did that all come about? Yeah. So um, kind of, it was really weird. So it was after, so Tracy had stayed home, I guess it was like her first year when she was, maybe she had stayed home one year. Um, so going into her second year and then colleagues had, had said to me, gosh, you guys really, um, you seem like, you know what you're doing with money. You should write a book to kind of let other people know, share your story. And I honestly didn't really give it too much thought. And one weekend, um, Ava and Tracy just happened to be out of town. And I don't know, it just struck me. I'm like, you know what, I'm going to sit down and just start writing. So I did that. And I continued for the next few months. And then I had all these, you know, words on paper. I thought, oh, it's kind of cool to share with family and friends. And uh, a couple people suggested, like, you should see if you can get it published. And at that time, so this is what, 2005, 2006, publishing industry was completely different than what it is now. So kind of shopped it, looked at it, and actually a publisher accepted it. Um, but with a caveat that I'd have to pay $4,000 up front to publish it. So uh, we, you know, discussed it, prayed about it, said, okay, so it's, we, we have savings in place. Let's just, you know, try to, try, try to take advantage of this. So that book, How to Survive and Perhaps Thrive on a Teacher's Salary, um, it came out in 2007. And, you know, that, that, you know, and that's what I tell people now a lot of times that, you know, there are so many people like, oh, you know, I just have all this bad luck. I never get any breaks. And, you know, for me, having that savings in place, I was able to take advantage of that opportunity. And that that opportunity that happened, what now, 16 years ago, has opened so many doors and continues to open doors for me. So, you know, for me, it was just now it's kind of like too what I can, I practice what I preach, but telling people have, you know, emergencies are going to happen. I mean, obviously things are going to go wrong, but opportunities may happen as well. And, you know, if you're able to take advantage of those opportunities, that's when, you know, cool things can happen. And that, you know, for me, that first book just led to a lot of other amazing experiences but had we not had the savings in place and kind of, you know, playing for the unexpected, really, then it never would have happened. So, right. There was the opportunity, but it was the opportunity plus the planning that furthered that opportunity, it sounds like. Yes, correct. Correct. Yes. Um, I know you had a short stint in the investment world. Why wasn't that a great fit for you? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I was going around and, and, you know, encouraging people to invest. And the, the hard part was, you know, I would be meeting with someone and let's say, you know, they had $20,000 of credit card debt. 
I knew they should not be investing. I mean, if you have $20,000 of debt, 18% interest, you pay that off. You're basically earning 18% guaranteed because that's eliminated. I, there is no investment I can guarantee that's going to earn 18% a year. And if I could, I'd be like Bernie Madoff, right? <laughs> and that, we don't want to go there. So it just, you know, for me, I knew for the company to make money, obviously people would have to invest, but it just didn't align, you know, with what I, what I believed in. Sure. There's some people I met with, they were ready and that was fine. But those other people that did have a lot of debt, or maybe they only had a couple hundred bucks in their emergency fund, you know, it, it wasn't, it just wasn't the right fit, um, you know, for me, the, the beliefs that I have. And so then what inspired you to focus your career on financial wellness? I know that you taught for a number of years, but eventually you, you yep. kind of settled into the financial wellness sphere. Yeah, it was just, you know, one of those things, actually, um, my time in the investment world just made a couple of connections. And then I was back in teaching. I didn't even, I mean, I didn't even know the job I have currently right now even existed. And then one day I got a call from one of the people I did investment stuff with like six years earlier. And and he told me about Mentoro, the financial wellness company that I'm with right now. And I uh, started with them kind of on a freelance basis. I did some presentations and things, um, and it looked like it was going to accelerate. And then March 2020 happened, and we all know what happens then. So it kind of delayed that. But then um, in November of 2020, it opened up. So I've uh, been with Mentoro since then full time. And you know, I, I just love what I do. It's just basically now, I mean, we're just a financial wellness company and all aspects of financial wellness, which is what aligns with me so much is that, you know, every step, whether it's you need help getting out of debt, investing for retirement, insurance, whatever it may be, we can help. And, you know, I love that part of it, of just helping, you know, basically putting personal back in personal finance and helping everyone where they need it. Yeah. So tell me more about your, your current role at Mentoro. Sure. So um, basically, I mean, I, my role is, is motivational mentor. So um, so what I do is, you know, a lot of everything to do with the content. So I've written uh, ebooks for us that, that we share with our participants, uh, started a podcast of our own. So called uh, Run with the, Running with the Bulls. So, uh, so yeah, definitely. I'm just kind of a neat experience to do with that. Um, just any content we have a, a, our own um, portal. So I've written over the 150 articles for the portal for, for our members. We have monthly webinars. So just all sorts of neat things um, that, you know, just to share and, and to help people wherever they are financially. Really cool. Um, so getting back to your own situation, what are some financial goals that uh, you and your family might have in the short term? And then the second question is what about long-term dreams? Sure. Um, you know, Right now, so um, so short term. Uh, so I've talked about my first daughter, Ava. Well, she's a senior this year, and just last week got accepted into UGA. Go dogs! So uh, so she'll be heading off to Athens uh, in the fall. So you know, right now she has scholarships and stuff, but we're gonna have to help you know pay room and board and things like that. So kind of short term, you know, we have money saved up, prepared for that. But those are the short terms. And then my other daughter, Ella, is uh, is fourteen, so we're gonna have you know college in a few years, probably for her as well. So those are probably the short term things are just to kind of get the girls you know, where they need to be, uh, get them through college and then kind of into adulthood and then off my payroll <laughs> would be kind of nice eventually. Um, so, so that's kind of more short term, but then long term, you know, for me, and we talk about it, Tracy and I, once again, we, you know, discuss our finances and I don't, you know, obviously one day I want to retire, but I really love what I'm doing right now. So it's like one of those things that I don't even really have like this retirement date in mind. Of course, you know, I think when I'm, you know, in my mid sixties, it would be nice to have the options. And that's what I work towards is having options to be able to, you know, to, to, to call it quits when I want to. But, um, you know, I, I think going back to kind of what we talked about before, just having, you know, having a plan in place to have the opportunity to continue pursuing those things that I feel passionate about. So that's kind of as Tracy as well. Right now, she's still a school teacher, a media specialist at an elementary school, and she loves what she's doing. So it's one of those things that, you know, it's important to when you get up in the morning and you feel passionate about what you're doing, doesn't feel like that J-O-B and it's like, oh, no, it's Monday. So that's kind of, you know, for me is just to continue having that. And I think having financial margin in place kind of helps you look at a job a little differently when it's uh, even in your head, you can say, you know what, I get to go to work. I don't have to go to work. So just kind of a, you know, a different play on words. So it sounds like in the long term, there's not necessarily a laser focus with the what it's kind of like having that flexibility in place so that wherever life takes you, you have those opportunities. Sure. Wherever I feel called. 
And, and that's kind of where I've always been. I mean, when I taught special needs students and I still, you know, I, I miss that. I mean, it was a great calling and that was, you know, love doing that. Then I just felt called, you know, to go in the financial wellness world. So I think that, you know, for me, is just to be open enough and, and, you know, to listen, but also to be financially prepared that if I am called to do something that I'm able to do that and fulfill what, you know, what, what, what I'm supposed to be doing here on earth. What are you still uncertain about when it comes to money? Um, you know, to me, and this is something that really, um, you know, struck with me. And I talked about sometimes now a little bit easier, you know, to get off my wallet per se than I was years ago. And, and I think, you know, I just, uh, I had something happen. It was a few years ago. Uh, my dad had a stroke. Um, so 60 years old, like you and I, and in one breath, bam, he was, had to be tube fed. Uh, couldn't walk, confined to a wheelchair, had to wear briefs. So, you know, long story short, but we ended up um, selling our house, moving in with my mom and dad, and I actually quit my job to take care of him. I was his caretaker. And then unfortunately, you know, a few months later, he did pass away. Um, you know, so so for me, it's kind of one of those things, the uncertainty, I think it it helped open my eyes of, okay, be that free spender, you know, at times take advantage of those things and don't always just hoard your money. But also I think the uncertainty of what life can happen. Um, you know, right now my mom does, she, we bought a house together. She, we finished the basement. She lives with us now. I didn't want her to be alone. So if you would ask me, you know, five years ago, what was going to happen, that never would have entered my mind. So I think, you know, for me, the uncertainty, I think it's probably just the uncertainty of life, um, you know, even two years ago. So I think, you know, I, that's kind of what drives me financially to, to have that margin in place, to have emergency savings is just the uncertainty of what is going to happen. And especially with things that are completely out of my control, there's a lot that I can't control. So, you know, for me, I just try to control what I can and that's saving as much in my retirement account and also in my emergency fund as I can. So I know getting back to the, the book that you had written that with its success, that there was some positive media exposure especially back in 2008, 2009, during the height of the housing crisis, which in many ways is a time much like today, where there were a lot of external factors that were putting a strain on people's finances. So what sort of advice could you share with people when so many things are seemingly out of their control? <laughs> right. And, and that's where, you know, it all starts back. And I know people hate the B word, the budget, right? People hate it. But I think all financial decisions stem from that. So to me, to when I talk with people and try to help them, number one step is track your spending for at least one month. And, and especially for most middle income earners, it, it may not seem like a lot, but you know that $5 lunch out every single day adds up to $25 a week, $100 a month, $1,300 a year. That can go a long way. So to me, analyze every dime that's being spent and then see if there are areas that you can cut back on. And, and, I, and it's not fun. And I'm not going to say it's, you know, enjoyable, but that puts the power, you, you get the power back because like you said, there's so many things out there we have no control over. I can control whether I go to Starbucks and buy a $5 latte every day, right? That's something in my power that I can take out if I choose. But a lot of people don't know that. So that's why I recommend just track that spending. Heck, a lot of people don't even know what their major expenses are and how much they're doing on their mortgage because everything comes out automatically now. So I say take a good look at that and see if there are any areas that you can cut back on. And that way you'll be more financially in control when the next thing happens, whatever that may be. Hopefully it's not as bad as COVID. I mean, that, that was, but we don't know. So at least if you can kind of take control of that, that and have that margin in place, when the next catastrophe does happen, hopefully you can turn it into an inconvenience instead. Do you have any specific uh, budgeting tips for others uh, in the face of rising prices? I know inflation has been particularly high of late. Right, right, right. hundred percent. And that's why I do say, I mean, yes, I can give, and there's general tips, you know, obviously if you can refinance your mortgage, depending on when you signed up, you know, you can save a lot of money. Um, if you haven't gotten new homeowners, auto insurance quotes in a few years, you can do that and save a lot of money. Um, but, you know, going back once again to seeing your own personal spending habits, I think that to me is the key. Even for me, a few months ago, I analyzed it and we were paying for Audible. I never signed up for Audible. I don't know how that got added. And it was $15 a month. Doesn't seem like much, but that's 180 some bucks a year 
on something I wasn't even using. So I think that's where it just stems back to going back to what your own personal habits are. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, drive a car as long as you can, you know, all those types of things, but it just is, you have to make it personal too, and just see exactly how are you spending money? But then also on the side, I know a lot of times, you know, I focus on, you know, the budget and trying to help people, but also it, it we're, we haven't been in a better time in years for the worker. You know, we're in the midst of still the great resignation. So, you know, be honest and open with your boss. Go and talk. If you are adding a lot of value to your company, ask for a promotion. Maybe there's some different roles you can take on to bump your salary a little bit. And if they say no, well, you know what? Now's a great time. There are plenty of workplaces that are looking for, for people. So you may be able to switch careers or even start that side gig. I mean, now more than ever, whether you like to blog, have a podcast, you like to dog walk, drive Uber, whatever it may be, you know, it's like the possibilities are somewhat limitless. So think about some of those natural skills that you possess. And, you know, I even go back to me, I, you know, I guess I was decent as a writer. So I did pen that first book. And then being a, a former teacher, I basically had to present, you know, seven times a day to my class and try to, especially when I taught first grade to keep, you know, keep them informed. So it just kind of led a natural progression to, to becoming a presenter as well. So think for, for individuals, think about some of those skills that you possess and maybe those could equate to something, you know, whether or not a full-time job, it could be a side job and it could boost your income a little bit. I was listening to one of your interviews and you stated something to the effect that money can act like a five-year-old if you're not careful. So I was wondering if you <laughs> yep. might elaborate on that. Sure. And, and you know, and I, I go back to my days uh, of teaching kindergarten. So uh, for sure, money can, like, you know, I, I've learned that if you don't tell money how to behave, it can run amok like a five-year-old. So I think back when I taught kindergarten class to 24 five-year-olds, if I went in that classroom and I gave no direction at all, you can imagine after about 10 minutes what it would look like. <laughs> and that's the same thing I have found with money. A lot of times if we don't give it direction, tell it how to behave, it just runs amok and it just spins. And that's why, you know, I kind of go back to that spending plan and going back to that budget. So then you can tell it, you can analyze, okay, this is where it's going. And then I do encourage you the, before the month begins, come up with a spending plan for that next month. So you tell every single dollar, this is where you are going this month. And then a lot of times when you do that, then you're able to even pay yourself first. And a lot of times we pay ourselves last, right? We pay our bills first and everything. And then we have nothing left over after that for our savings. So when you set it aside before and you tell your money how to behave and it's earmarked for specific things, then it tends to go a lot farther. I know, and you've talked a lot about being a big advocate of building up savings. I know a lot of our listeners are in the process of paying down credit card debt, which often means that there might be less flexibility in the budget. So do you have any suggestions on how to juggle debt repayment and savings goals? Definitely. You know, and I, I think, you know, I, you have to have some savings in place. So, you know, I recommend people have at least one month of living expenses in place. And that's just in a savings account. I don't care what kind of interest you're earning. I just want it there. Like, you know, you need four tires. Guess what? I'm paying cash for it right now. I'm not putting it on a credit card just for those minor things that will happen. After you have like one month of expenses saved, that's when I recommend you start paying off that debt. And for me, I think, you know, they're, they're definitely, you know, and you know, the two approaches, the debt avalanche and the debt snowball. I feel that debt snowball works best. Um, I, I think many people get into trouble financially because of behavior. I think a lot of people think it's kind of like a diet. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And the debt snowball, when you list those debts in order from least to greatest, and you focus on that debt that has the least amount first and you attack it and you pay that thing off quick, it motivates you like a diet. You lose three pounds first week, two pounds the next week, you want to keep going. So that to me, I, I've found to be the best approach for a lot of people. Now, granted with the debt avalanche, when you're paying, you're focused on the highest interest debt first, you know, you're going to save more money overall by doing that. Because when you look at the interest payments, you're going to save more in interest. But let's just say that that, that debt that has the highest interest is say $5,000 and it takes you, you know, two years to pay it off. It's hard for a lot of people to stay on that. And that's why they got into debt in the first place, many people, because it's hard to maintain that. So, you know, for me, that debt snowball approach, we're just attacking the small step first. When that's paid off, you take that money and put it on the next step, bam, bam, and you just keep going down. That to me, I think is the most effective way for, for many to pay off their debt because it motivates them. It keeps you wanting to keep moving and you're making progress basically on a monthly basis. Yeah. And what you're really talking about is having a structure in place. 
Um, yes. And that's essentially whether you're handling your debts on your own and putting that structure in place with something like a debt snowball, whether you're on a debt management program, which is something that agencies like Greenpath do, where we put people on a plan with that structure. It's basically having right. that consistency that could, yes. that could be so huge. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, and, the, and you start like with Greenpath. I mean, it is, it's the structure. Some people, you know, and a lot of people, they need that structure. It's someone here, this is what you have to do. And, and it kind of does it for them. Some people are self-motivated and if, you know, if someone's self-motivated, they can do it on their own. That's fine. But I do notice kind of like having a personal trainer. A lot of people know they can go to the gym and how to work out and what to do, but having that personal trainer helps keep that, that structure in place and make sure the results and the actions happen. If you'd like to learn more about debt snowballs and debt management programs, we invite you to check out our free online course, Paying Down Your Credit Card. The course includes an interactive worksheet and several stories from past guests of this podcast. Learn more at www.greenpath.com slash learning lab. So earlier we were talking a little bit about how taboo money is as a, as a subject mm-hmm. in our culture. What could be done to kind of break through that? I know part of your role is, is really going out and giving presentations and talking to people mm-hmm. about that, but just in everyone's everyday life amongst friend, family, relationships, how could we open up about money? I mean, and I'll say it as a former teacher, I think it has to start in the schools. I mean, we do a horrible job of teaching financial literacy in the schools. We teach, you know, the characters of Beowulf and the periodic table that we'll never, ever use again the rest of our lives. But we talk nothing about finance. So as an adult, if you're not doing well financially, it's very difficult to teach your children how to do well, right? So I think it does have to start in the schools. And we have to open that up and just teach those financial basics so kids understand. I mean, like I said, I have a, a, a soon-to-be graduate. I mean, I talk to her about student loans, and you know, we're, we're hoping she's not going to ever have to take any of those on. But many kids have no idea. They just sign up, and it's like, okay, well, I got to go through, you know, and get these student loans. They don't realize how much they're going to owe when all said and done. So I think to, for me to open it up, it has to start in schools. And I know there is a push in a lot of states for financial literacy programs, and I, I just hope that continues. Just so it, it, you know. Once again, I, I think it should start in the home, and I think parents should, but unfortunately, many aren't going to. So I think that's where, as a society, I think it's you know I think we we owe it to to our our kids for to to make it a mandate in the schools, just so they are getting it from someone. So, so closer to home, I know you mentioned that you've started to talk about um, how student loans could work uh, with with your daughter. How transparent mm-hmm. are you and, and your wife with your children when it comes to decisions about the family's overall finances? Very transparent. I mean, we talk to them all the time about money, and I, you know, I they don't know exactly how much we make, but we let them know we have savings because things happen. And I pointed out, you know, things to her like emergencies that do happen. And, you know, once again, they, they had a move a few years ago, we moved in with my mom and dad, they witnessed that firsthand. I mean, it affected their life, they left their childhood home to do that. But they saw, hey, we're doing it to take care of our grandfather. And that is, you know, because mom and dad controlled their money, they weren't living paycheck to paycheck, they were able to do so uh, value what's important. So I think, you know, actions speak loud, but we're also, we discuss it as much as we can. And I, you know, try to bring up examples. And of course, you know, when they're 14 and 17, it can be hard. I mean, some of it is a little above their head, but I think going back to kind of what I talk about of what I want, you know, my, my goals basically are to have options in life. And that's what I've always looked at. And that's kind of what I try to tell them as well is that money, you know, it gives you options on things to be able to do, whether it's a career that may not pay a lot of money, but you have low expenses so you can pursue that, or it's taking care of a family or buying nice things, whatever it may be, money gives you options to do so. So what are some more specifically uh, challenges uh, when it comes to influencing your children's financial health? I mean, of course, friends. I mean, I mean, we live right now, like I said, I mean, we bought a house with my mom. She lives in the basement. So a bigger house than we've ever lived in our lives. But, you know, my daughters, they go to people's house that have bigger houses. They're like, why, you know, their house is bigger than ours. I'm like, well, that's nice, you know? So it's just, I think it just shows no matter what, 
you know, and I try to tell them someone's always going to have more than you. And, but I don't even know their financial situation either. They could be, you know, up to their eyeballs in debt to have that, that huge house. So, you know, try to explain those things just, you know, like we know appearances can be deceiving. You know, I mean, just, you can have all these nice things, but you can also have no money at all. So I try to refer back and just kind of, you know, go back to kind of what Tracy and I lived of do what's right for you and your family. It isn't right for me to have this huge, this is what's right for us. So, and just try to instill those values in them. And, you know, once again, if they feel in life that it's more valuable to have these things and go to Paris every year, then, you know, have at it. If you have the money to afford to be able to do so, that's where you place your values. I have no problem with that. But I think that's, you know, kind of the difficult thing I think right now and I know that study just came out like with Facebook and Instagram of how much it does harm young people because of constantly trying to keep up and constantly trying to keep up. I think that's probably the biggest challenge facing young people right now is just that that constant comparison and that FOMO that they're always seeing, you know, the highlights of someone's life from that day. It's like, you know, the sports center, you never see bad plays, except, you know, sometimes I play the, the worst 10 of the day or whatever, but most of the time it's the greatest highlights. And I think, you know, that's what they're dealing with on a consistent basis now. Yeah, they're not necessarily seeing all the the boring hard work that goes into right. it. It's it's kind of my favorite thing is like when you're getting out of debt, like that could be super motivating because you actually see your debt balances go down. It's at a high interest. I think right. one of the most boring things, and I put boring in quotes, is building up an emergency fund because it's just <laughs> sitting there. It's not earning much interest. Right. It's not earmarked necessarily for anything, but as you've right. talked about it, it's such a powerful foundation. Well, and I think for a lot of people, until something bad happens, they don't realize, wow, I really need this emergency fund. And, and I think that's, especially for younger people, I think that's where it hurts because they don't have to go through it quite yet if they're living at home. Unless they've seen their parents struggle, then you know that can leave a lasting impression on them. But you know, like I will say, so my 17 year old, we just took her car into the shop that was making weird noises. And they just called me yesterday saying it needs a new engine. Now, hopefully it's under warranty. It should be. So, it, but I'm like, so here it is. Like, I don't want to have to buy a new car, you know? So it's just one of those things that I think it just shows life experience. There's no better, better lesson, you know, that you can learn than what life throws us. So I do think that's probably, you know, part of it as well is that, you know, I can talk to them blue in the face of those things that happen, but sometimes until they experience it on their own, it can be tough too. Have your children taught you uh, anything when it comes to money? Um, you know, I, I will say, you know, kind of going back to like, to, to just enjoying it a little bit more. I mean, I've always been one that's been very, you know, goal set and driven. Like I want this. And, you know, at one point before we did move in with my mom and dad, we had the mortgage almost paid off and I'm like, oh, it's going to feel so different. And I mean, it did, but it kind of did. I mean, it really wasn't like this aha, you know, so of course I want to be completely dead and that's fine. But I think, you know, going back to, to living a little bit as well, like if you, you know, right now, every single month I set money aside for our family vacation. So I'm still, I still do it debt-free. I don't go into debt when we go on vacation, but I still go on vacation, you know, whereas years before it had been like, no, we're not going on vacation. We're going to pay off this mortgage and we're going to pay that, you know, and, and I think that's kind of, I think just loosened me up a little bit of just, it's okay when, when you're financially responsible and you're doing the right things to enjoy it sometimes as well. And not always just be focused on this next goal of trying to achieve. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, we alluded to it and you did, you know, times can be tough right now. And I know a lot of people are, you know, with with the price of, of you know, gas and, and groceries and everything like that. But, you know, my thing is what I want people to take away is that you can do it. If this former school teacher, I knew never took a finance class in my life. If we can figure out and do it, others can as well. Now, it's not going to be easy. And it may take a little, you know, some hard work, some research and, and some honest, open dialogue, but it can be done. And that's what I want people, you know, to take away just, you know, for me, from your program, from just to just to know that it can be done. So many people think and they set up, oh, my parents were bad with money. I, everyone I know is bad with money. I'm just going to be bad. No, that doesn't have to be the case. You do have the power to take control of it and change and make a positive change for your life. Well, thank you, Danny. We can't thank you enough uh, for sharing your wisdom, sharing a little bit about your story. And uh, we wish you and your family the best of luck. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on, Chris. I enjoyed it.
As always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Omari and Shamika. And as we reflect back on Danny's story, one of the uh, aspects of it that was intriguing to me is how he was able to maximize his time that he and his wife spent in Europe. And I wonder, like, Shamika, what were some of the the money lessons that you uh, saw from there? We definitely learned the lesson that uh, although you may be on a fixed budget, you still are able to do the things that um, you would like to do, such as traveling. Um, It may require you to be a bit more budget conscious, but still it is something that's definitely not impossible. He was able to take advantage of his opportunity and uh, travel to the best of his abilities while still maintaining a budget and being conscious of that at all times. Yeah, and what's really cool is like, I think he had, he, he described having these like mini budgets for each trip. So like we always think of a budget as a monthly thing, but sometimes for these one-off experiences that can, that can be super helpful. Absolutely. Um, Omari, I know throughout Danny's story, the, the concept of delayed gratification came up. I wonder if you might speak to that. Yeah, that's uh, something that is crucially important for many of us to understand as we uh, get more comfortable within our budgets. It's something that I recognize as a millennial and um, a, a person who is an established adult, but like I, I would say I, I'm newly arrived at that establishment. Um, it is a difficult thing to consider thinking long term and making the behavior, doing the behavior change, making the adjustments necessary to delay that gratification, whether that means to put away money on a regular basis to change your spending habits so that you can afford to make a bigger uh, purchase or a bigger investment down the line. And it, it's it's definitely something that kind of take that can help you go from uh, a level of comfort uh, with your budget to really someone who is exceeding and being prepared for all of the ups and downs that life inevitably will throw at you. Yeah, and actually one example of that was at one time he talked about how him and his wife would share a car and that would often require him to ride a bike to work. It reminds me of my own story uh, on the car end that when my wife uh, first got her driver's license, we may do with the one car for a while. Sometimes it took some creativity, but especially in our case with her as a new driver, her insurance rates were going to be a lot higher, saved us a significant amount of money. And on the riding a bike to work end, uh, Omar, I understand you had some experience with that too. (laughs) So yeah, I can definitely relate to that. It's maybe not exactly the same situation that you had with your wife, but certainly when I was younger and didn't have quite as uh, stable a financial situation, I decided that it would be a good idea to try to save money on gas and ride my bike a 45 minute trip from the east side of Detroit to uh, the middle of the city which was definitely um, an adventure. There were one or two times where I uh, had some dogs uh, tag along with me uh, uninvited. Um, But again, it was worth it. I did save some money, but it was definitely a sacrifice that that, uh, didn't come easy all the time. Yeah, I could imagine if the dogs are chasing you, you're thinking I'm building character, right, in, in, in that moment. <laughs> I'm delaying my gratification in this moment. Yeah, that's exactly what you're thinking. Um, so at another point in the story, Danny talked about in his short uh, career uh, on the investing side that he would often have people that he was trying to help that were wanting to invest but had credit card debt and how kind of the 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 challenge of you know, trying to explain to them how you're 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 main goal might better be served by focusing on the debt first. And actually reminds me, uh, I remember once uh, when I was a financial counselor, I had a client that had something like $60,000 worth of credit card debt, which isn't necessarily that atypical, but he had $40,000 that were in investments in, let's say, mutual funds, something of the like. And I remember in his situation, he had actually acquired the money as sort of a like a windfall so it was kind of off on the side but when i explained to him the benefit of using the investments to pay down the chunk of credit card debt it was like he was making all the money that the credit cards were charging so if the credit cards were charging 20 percent it's almost like he was getting a 20 percent rate of return exactly the point that that danny was making i was wondering if you could speak more to that omari yeah definitely um 
I think that in today's uh, personal financial climate, there is pressure from other would-be authorities that suggest the value and the importance and the urgency even of investing, whether it be in crypto or the stock market or whatever. And I think that these are, are reasonable options if you have the room in your budget to be able to afford that investment. Um, I would say that it's a thing that we have to be careful with and make sure that our personal budget is in line and that you have the savings and that you have the cushion to take the risk of what that investment could look like. It, in many cases, it could have benefits, but in, in many, oftentimes it's not an immediate, um, there isn't an immediate boom that you see. So you need to be able to balance that with the um, structure of your current personal budget. Absolutely. And as as Danny describes his story, um, even as things got better, even after they upgraded uh, the size of their home, which there were specific reasons for that, you know, taking in a family member, um, th there was still this thought from his from his daughters about, hey, dad, you know, other people have bigger houses than us. And he really drived home an important point that sometimes appearances can be deceiving. Someone's always going to have more than you. Shemeika, I was wondering if you might speak to that from your experience. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that, that is something that is definitely true, that someone is always going to have more than you or appear to be having more than you, especially nowadays in the age of social media, where it's very easy to log on to social media and most people are showcasing their best selves, their most glamorous lifestyles. And that may not necessarily be the case because they could have other issues that they don't post onto social media for us to see. And it definitely can be a little bit disappointing that, and you sometimes personally may be feeling inadequate due to seeing all of these luxurious lifestyles on social media and constantly being surrounded by that. Um, but at the end of the day, appearances can definitely be deceiving and um, we can't say for sure what someone's financial lifestyle looks like based on what we're seeing. And while they, may not think that they live in the most glamorous home. They definitely are saving for the future and that definitely and preparing themselves for the future and having a stable financial future. So that definitely is more glamorous than anything that you could see on social media as well. Very good point, Shamika. And it, it almost reminds me of if you've ever seen those old sets uh, in, in those old Western movies where you have the facade of this very pretty, quaint looking village, but it's really just the front of it and behind it is is actually nothing sometimes. Um, and not to say that that's always the case. Sometimes people will legitimately have more than you, but you know, we're, we're, we're humans that like to compare things to one another. And the more you get out of that space, the more uh, healthy uh, you might be uh, mentally and ultimately financially. So, Thank you, as always, for both of your insights as we uh, reflect on some of the lessons from Danny's story. Thank you so much. Thank you. As we wrap up today's episode, I have one quick favor to ask. Would you be willing to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts? When we get more reviews, we show up more in searches, which means more people will hear our stories and realize that they're not alone facing their money hurdles. Special thanks to Hero for our theme music, which will play us out. Here's hoping each of you enjoy your journey of financial wellness as much as your destination. Well, welcome back, Hero.